Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Hey! Also with us all the way from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Lee Younger. I was just racking my brain for like another classic Happy Days uh, greeting. Couldn't think of one and then thought, how far back do we want our listeners to be able to reference things? We really push, <laughs> we really push the listeners on that stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. Well, Lee, if it makes you feel any better, when you mentioned that, I was like, I guess it'd be a visual gag, but I was going to be like, for those of you who are at home, Lee just uh, hit a jukebox, <laughs> but then I have to explain, like, that's a thing that happened on Happy Days, which yeah. was a television show set in the 50s, <laughs> where they had these things called jukeboxes, because <laughs> records could skip, and now I'm like, we're eight levels deep of pop culture and technology <laughs> descriptions that are just confusing people. That's right. You turn it on on Nick at Night on your cable package. Yes. These are all things that people don't know exist anymore. <laughs> it, was the, uh, it was the stranger things of its time. <laughs> In a sense. With less uh, you know, weird uh, sci-fi elements, except, I guess, for the one episode where they had an alien played by Robin Williams, which <laughs> wow. is a thing that happened on Happy Days. That was the backdoor <laughs> pilot to Mork and Mindy. Yes, I have watched a lot of television in my life. How did you figure that out? <laughs> Dude, I could, not, I could not have remembered that Robin Williams, that that whole Mork and Mindy thing was a spinoff of Happy Days. There's no way I would have remembered that. Yeah, that's, that's God mode right there, dude. Think of the important details about my friends and loved ones that I don't know because I do know that. <laughs> <laughs> nanu, nanu. Yeah. Had to, had to make sure that my uh, wedding anniversary with my wife was an easily rememberable number. Uh, so that I wouldn't forget it, but the 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 status of the Mork and Mindy pilot is apparently forever burned <laughs> in my cerebellum. Absolutely. As it should be. As it should be. And as we should, we'll move on. We have some great questions from you listeners. We have a very interesting uh, product that was sent in by a listener that we might uh, take in the emergency direction. But first, we start, as we very often do not on the show, with a bit of breaking news. Oh, this is breaking as of us recording on Sunday, May 22nd. And uh, I don't know how much detail we need to do on this because you, you folks will probably, if you are interested at all, you'll probably have had time to read and learn more in the ensuing few days before the show comes out. But um, the headline, Christianity Today right now from uh, Russell Moore, this is the Southern Baptist apocalypse. Yeah. Well, they, uh, they did away with subtlety, Matt. Yeah, um, and no, Southern Baptist Apocalypse is not the newest uh, Kirk Cameron project where they try to uh, be somehow even less artful than the Left Behind series. Well, I, it could also be like it, it could also be like you know one of those really bad Christian bands that's trying to sound like Black Sabbath or something like that. Oh, that's yeah. very yeah. good. Yeah, I like that. It's very solid. Southern Baptist Apocalypse. No one is coming to this show. <laughs> for, ha for half of your potential audience, you lost them with the uh, third word in that sentence. And for the other half, you definitely lost them with the first two. Yeah. So, um, we, and we're going to move on from this quickly because, again, uh, we like to do some comedy and keep it light at the top of the show. And there's very little funny about this. Um, basically, mm -hmm. there has been a huge uncovering of systemic sexual abuse and covering up for said systemic abuse in the Southern Baptist convention to the tune of apparently a file uh, cabinet somewhere at their headquarters in Nashville 
with 700 cases against senior members uh, going up to and including uh, sitting presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention that have just been uh, buried, uh, put aside, uh, accusals of things like intimidating witnesses and trying to get uh, guilt people into not pursuing accusations by telling them it would hurt the church, telling them it would hurt missionaries on the field, and all that, whatnot. I, we bring this up at the top of the show because, again, it will hopefully, uh, as these come, things come to light, it will be a huge story in the Christian world in the ensuing little bit. And you may think, what do your friends on the old Say That podcast think of this? And uh, I, I, I don't want to speak for my co-host here, but I'm going to open the bid at anything short of selling every building you own and using that money to pay restitution to the families is complete and utter nonsense. Mm. Yep. It's not cute. Uh, it's not cool. A lot of people got away with a lot for a lot of time. And I also wanted to point this out because, you know, often we see the things with the kind of patriarchal stuff and the sexist stuff. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the cultural war stuff a lot. And uh, we make fun of it because it is to be made fun of. It's stupid. It's goofy. Um, also, this keeps this show from just being a 50 minutes of us screaming into the void every week, um, which is, you know, good for your listening pleasure. Uh, screaming into the void, the first, si- the first single from Southern Baptist Apocalypse coming soon. <laughs> oh. um, but we do acknowledge and want to talk and acknowledge the point that at the core of that is something that is profoundly evil. Yeah. Um, all the, the culture war nonsense, the, uh, the misogyny, the patriarchy. Um, messages like that is how you get to a system where um, the victims of abuse are not considered. And the only thing that's considered is the profitability and the uh, stature of the institution that is victimizing those peoples. And that is some utter, utter, there's a word I want to say here. We really try to keep it clean on the show, but you know, the word. Yeah. Mm. In the context of this too, we, we should, mention and take note of is, um, you know, separate Twitter storms about, uh, you know, uh, uh, about, you know, modest clothing and immodest clothing, all this kind of stuff. And, and of course, um, just debates of things going on with, you know, decisions by the, uh, you know, Supreme court draft leaks, all that kinds of things, a, a lot of self-righteous talk coming from a lot of Christian circles. And meanwhile, this comes out that it's like, what do, you know, how people's lives are being treated, how their, you know, how their bodies are being treated, how all of it's being covered up, how they're being um, intimidated and, and, and how they're being shamed and how they're being guilted into staying silent. And as, as you said, even, you know, it's always completely impure evil, but the ridiculousness of it in the light of the broader context of the way a lot of Christians are talking loudly in, uh, in in media right now is absolutely abhorrible and unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely right. Uh, one specific example to drive home exactly what Lee is saying here. Uh, this is from uh, the the article. This is one of the bullet points from these, this investigation. Former Southern Baptist Convention President Jack Graham, when he was pastor at Prestonwood Baptist Church, allegedly allowed an accused abuser of young boys to be dismissed quietly in 1989 without reporting the abuse to police. The accused abuser, John Langworthy, later was charged with abusing young boys in Mississippi in 2011. Um, so here's the thing. If you're kind of from your pulpit, from your Twitter platform, from your book, whatever, 
going on and on about how transgender people existing is grooming, but the organization you work for is letting actual child abusers off the hook because you don't want bad press and they do it again. Not only do you just suck and you definitely do, and that's fine. Theologically, we all suck. I'm I'm not putting myself on pedestal there. I don't want to hear what you have to say about sexuality. I don't want to hear what you have to say about morality. I don't want to hear what you have to say about what other people do because uh, this is not from the Bible, but it's still good advice. You should probably get your own house in order before you go on telling other people what they should be doing all the time. That's kind of the only thing you've done for the last 40 years was tell women, uh, LGBT people, minorities, how they should live while uh, your whole thing was profiting off this. So, uh, yeah, again, not the most fun place to start, but occasionally we like to be very, very clear where we stand on things because you, a lot of you folks have been listening to the show for a while. You pretty much know where we stand, where we stand on these things. But it never hurts to say it out loud. And uh, again, we got through that without swearing. We got through it without yelling. (laughs) I'm going to move on. That's pretty good. Yeah, not bad for all of us. Let's move on to lighter fare. Let's move on to something that was sent into us by one of our wonderful listeners. And it is a game. This comes into us from Eric. This is a board game. If you're in familiar, if you're familiar with the uh, Settlers of Catan type deal, you know you got your resources and you got to build stuff. This is that, but it is uh, based around Noah's Ark, and it's called the Flood. <laughs> <laughs> now, fellas, I'm no biblical scholar, but maybe you guys can refresh my memory. Was the story uh, is the biblical story of Noah's Ark that a bunch of people were trying to build a big boat first? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're on different teams. The blue team is trying to get their boat done before the water comes, and the purple team thinks they're going to pull it off. That's right there in Genesis six, Matt. Come on, this is in the Bible. I don't think that's true. <laughs> well, um, in the very apocalyptic voiceover of this thing, they even mentioned like. Noah was set to build an ark, but no one believed him. Apparently, except for the other five guys who were trying to build slightly different colored arcs. <laughs> I also love that they got they all the arcs look exactly the same. So they just they it, it looks more like a uh, like a reality style game show where they all got the same plans for an arc. Yes, and then it's whoever can get it built the fastest. Yeah, th- I think in this version of the story, God is the uh, the reality show host who gives them all the That's the right. number of cubits, and then they have to go <laughs> scramble and build it first. Yes, I love the idea of a mashup of basically the biblical story of the flood and Project Runway. <laughs> God, God gives them an impossible job and very limited, unconventional materials. Make it work. Make it. That's just. Just it, Paul Hollywood, I think, is the guy. Wait, no, that's not the guy. That's Tim Gunn. Paul show. Hollywood, Tim Gunn. Yeah, Paul Hollywood is Great British Bake Off. Who's the super well-dressed dude that does uh, Project Runway? Tim Gunn. Tim Gunn! Yeah. Tim Gunn plays God in this, and I have just delighted myself with this whole journey. Yes. I mean, isn't that really the the general subtext of the 40 years in the desert? <laughs> this stuff's going to fall from the sky. Make it work. 
<laughs> and the Hanukkah story, the loaves and fishes. I mean, make it work is not a, uh, you know, it's a pretty, pretty good stand in for live by faith. Yeah. Yeah. I also like the idea of like, you think about other aspects of the, of the knowing the Ark story. There's the, there's the part where it starts to actually rain and it says after they got all the animals on the boat, then God shut the door. And yeah. I like the idea of like all the contestants actually get the boat done in time, but like there's a problem with like with like Ralph and Morgan's like uh you know hinges. And so God's like, Mm-mm, not shutting that door. No! <laughs> okay, I love that. As as a yes and, you know, kind of to build. I assume that in the arc, if you manage to get your hinges working, God closes the door. And then it's a Highlander-esque game of naval combat where there can be only one. Wow. And you have to duke it out on the new high seas until there's only one arc remaining in order to have the wow. narrative continuity of the Bible. That's incredible. So you're you're suggesting like an expansion pack for this game where it's Battleship <laughs> 2? <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. Yes. Yes. I like that. Now, they've kind of beat us to the punch on one... Um, reality show competition show trope which is you know everything's kind of going along and then there's the the extra thing that shakes it all up you know it's survivor and they're switching teams or it's great british bake-off and they have to use this ingredient in this one apparently there is um a sin card oh no <laughs> that moves the uh the righteous judgment lightning one step closer to happening <laughs> wow wait 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 time out it wasn't lightning, it was water. Yeah, you're getting your uh, you're getting your Zeus in your Old Testament there. Wow. So I quote from again from the Kickstarter video, there's a card, sin, move the lightning token clockwise. Oh gosh, Christians. Wow. Yeah, I, wow. I, I understand, you know, narrative needs a ticking clock, but we're we're playing pretty fast and loose with the uh, with the text here. <laughs> Now, to to give credit where credit is due, move the lightning token clockwise would be an amazing opening line to the song Screaming Into the Void from the band Baptist Apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. Now that's something. Yeah. Yeah. That that in a Baptist Apocalypse song is where a lightning token can exist. Yeah. Yeah. But not so much in this children's board game, which they mentioned like four times in the copy fun for the entire family from eight to 80. And I'm just picturing there's a scene in this old Sims episode. I cannot remember the context, but it's a game and it's fun for ages. It's like six to 60. And it just cuts to grandpa and Maggie, both looking angry, sitting on the couch, like not playing. I just picture like the, the let's be honest, folks. We all have a vision in our mind of the household where we don't play settlers of Catan. Yeah. We have flood. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a yeah. feeling those are exactly the kind of people who would take the age range on the box as gospel. Yeah. So yeah. sorry, Donnie, you're only seven and a half <laughs> to let you play <laughs> would be willful and a violation of the rules. We don't yeah. want to start the game with the lightning token already in <laughs> position to do harm. And if you ask again, the lightning token is going to move forwards. <laughs>
As someone who who grew up in a house where they they tried to have the crappy Christian version of of everything in popular media, your kids don't want this. Like, if you're that kind of parent, you're thinking about this. I promise you, on behalf of your children, they don't want this. They they want Monopoly, not God ordained the market. Trust me when I tell you this. They 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 want the real thing that is cool. Just do that. It's fine. Okay, now now we're talking. Business opportunity. Dave Ramsey presents Monopoly. Oh, oh my word! Where you yes. where you all start with very very different amounts of money, and the people who start with more get to just weirdly berate the people who start with less <laughs> for making bad decisions. Yes, you get. It's like you had you advanced and bought another condominium, Matt. Now you get to draw a card from the make the person to the right of you feel bad stack. Yeah. It's like, well, you paid off fifty thousand dollars in debt. The person, you have the person next to you, like, but I made less than fifty thousand dollars this entire year, and I have to pay it for rent and expenses. So it's not really fair to hold us up to. And then it's just nothing but lightning tokens. Yeah, yeah. When you when you hit the chance card on it, there's a lot of disproportion. You know, you pull a chance card and it says you splurged on Starbucks, lose all of your money. <laughs> You brought a handgun to your workplace. That's fine for some reason, and you get to move forward? <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> yeah, and one last thought on the flood game, um, and we were talking about this before the show. You know, and all of us have been in outreach uh, areas, and that, you know, people have never, never heard a lot of the biblical stuff, or people who, you know, hurt when they were a kid, and some of it didn't jive right with them, you're trying to explain it. And uh, the, the flood story can be a tough one, because, you know, on the face of it, God, God, you know, threatens to murder everyone in the world, which is, you know, it's a hard pill to swallow. Um, you know, there's a lot in there. It's a, there's a lot of uh, culture and layer and history just in there. And so but most of the time you try not to break it down to just, well, you know, if you make God mad, sometimes he might flood you. But apparently the people who made this game were like, but what if that's what it was? That'd be pretty cool, huh? <laughs> be pretty sweet. <laughs> what if mistakes made it come faster? <laughs> I just I, I know you were on the last thought, but I, I I didn't I didn't zoom in and see the sin card. But like my my growing up um, experiences lead me to believe that it would just be a picture of a kid smoking a cigarette and like listening to a rap song. That's what yeah. the sin card would be. Also, I did I did uh, go down farther on the website and on the uh, Kickstarter page. And I saw that there is an expansion pack that includes a beasts module. A beast module. <laughs> yes. Another great cut from that record. <laughs> I don't know what this is. I was just thinking about, you know, you're you're trying to manage resources like, you know, um timber and tar and stuff like that as you construct your ark. And and then I then I look down there and they're like, there's a beasts module. Now that we're not talking about the animals two by two, like beasts. I'm imagining like animals that are trying to kill you. Yeah that, yeah, that is an interesting question of what flavor of Christian weird is the beast module? Is that <laughs> there were dinosaurs on the ark or whore of Babylon, number of the beast trying to, you know, a sea monster <laughs> rises up and tries to swat your boat away. And honestly, could be either. The beast module is always a coin flip. We've always said that. It hasn't meant anything till now, but we've always said it. If you... <laughs> If you uh if you really 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 donate a lot of money to this, you might even get your own Leviathan 
adding like your Leviathan game piece. It comes out of the depths after the flood has happened, wraps its tail around your arc, and smashes yeah. it to bits. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually, Job expansion pack, God shows up to taunt you about how cool the Leviathan is <laughs> now that your boat is destroyed. Oh, it's gosh. just a card that you get to throw down and say, and just say, I will question you and you will answer me. <laughs> I love that. I love that this has become like an Old Testament omnibus yeah, board game. Yeah. That is just absolutely fantastic. It's like in the beast module, if you really pony up, you get like the, the talking Balaam's donkey. Yeah. Yeah. There, you go. there it is. Well, I'm picturing this as having a lot of kind of uh, Uno reverses where, yeah, if you if you build up your Leviathan card, somebody is like, I finished my arc. You're like, nope, Leviathan, bam. <laughs> and also continuing uh, this show's many year streak of saying a dumb thing as a joke and then it happening. Uh, update number seven from May 8th. Uh, vote on the color of the dinosaur meeple. meeple. With the dinosaur co-op module unlocked, we have decided to ask each other. Each and every one of you, your opinion on the color of the dinosaurs in the module. So, wow. Yeah. We couldn't just do normal legalism. We also had to work in some, some young earth weirdness there. If you make fun of it, the Christians will create it. Wow. We, we just manifested. <laughs> yeah, we got to stop doing that. When Oprah talks about manifesting, it's all like, oh, dream job and money and a vacation in Bali and whatever we do it. It's like. Oh, no, they actually wrote that book. Oh, I'm sad now. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Self-defeating manifesting brought to you by your friends here at the Say That Podcast. And on that, I'm not sure we ever actually declared emergency on because it was a very awkward transition from a serious process. But even if we didn't, we will declare emergency off. We have to, and we will move on to questions. If you have a question for us, Matt, this all the way to the end. I'm so sorry I'm doing this. You're all good. I shouldn't have done this. I scrolled all the way to the bottom. Oh, there is a picture good. of a man riding something that is called a woolly rhino. What? And I know that we need to get to the questions. I just wanted to say those words out loud. It's a, it's a, it is a drawing of a man. It's something you can unlock. It is a man riding with, <laughs> with a uh, saddle, a woolly rhino. Wow. Sure. Saddle the Woolly Rhino, also a really, really good track off Southern Baptist Apocalypse. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I will say this. I, I've gone to Wikipedia. The Woolly Rhinoceros is an extinct species of rhinoceros that was common throughout Europe and Asia during the Pleistocene Epoch and survived the end of the last glacial period. So um, they didn't make it up. That's impressive. And also, That's something. Ever, well, just an interesting whip around a Google images. Oh, lots of people have opinions on what the woolly rhinoceros looked like. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, yes. Yeah. That's, um, that was definitely worth going back for Cause that blew my mind. I was <laughs> woolly rhinoceros. I know there's woolly mammoth. It's not that much weirder than a, a woolly elephant, but I just wasn't prepared for that. That's hardcore. Yes, hopefully, again, that is a a trump card you can unleash to knock a hole in your opponent's uh, incipient arc. We can only hope. Fantastic. We will now move on to our, our questions. Uh, again, if you hang out with us all the way to the end, we have some ways to get in touch with this, or you can scroll down to your episode description, hit the links you find there. Our first question comes in and says, 
As a believer who wants to be obedient to Scripture, how do I follow Jesus' command in Matthew 18, 21 about without allowing myself to be subject to other people's abuse again and again? A great question. You are probably familiar with the relevant passage where Jesus is asked, uh, should I forgive my brother seven times? He replies, you should forgive them up to seven times 70, which uh, is quite a lot. Yeah. And uh, I'm not so much at math, but that is uh, many, many more times than I want to forgive someone who's being a jerk to me. So an excellent question that one we definitely relate to. And Jed, where would we kick this off? Man, it's a great question. We're really glad that you wrote in. And I think that in order to put kind of some some left and right boundaries on this, which I think is really what you're asking for, like what are the – Jesus is saying that there's not a limit to the number of times that you should forgive a brother or sister who sins against you, but maybe there are other left and right mm-hmm. boundaries that would apply to this, and maybe we should know what those are. I think that's kind of the meat of your question. It's a great question, and I think the easiest way – to find those left and right limits is to look at other things that Jesus said and did, because I think that he's actually given us some clues. So Jesus himself actually shows us that loving people, which is good, and forgiving people, which is good, is not the same as putting yourself in a situation to be hurt by them when you have a sense of the kind of nonsense that they are on. And I want to give you two uh, direct quotes from Jesus that kind of talk about that. So The first one, uh, give me one second to pull this up here, is going to be in John chapter 2, and let's read together, I'm going to say verses 23 and 24, and I'm, I'm in the NIV, but it reads, Now, while he was in Jerusalem, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. All right, well, that sounds, that sounds good. Here's the next part. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Let's pause for a second. This is fascinating that we have Jesus, we have, you know, God in the flesh uh, who is perfectly loving and accepting and forgiving, being present for people and doing things to help them while at the same time going, whoa, 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 whoa. I, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to be careful in the way that we do things here. That's really fascinating. Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now let's look at another passage. Uh, This is one that starts with a verse that I think just about everybody in the world knows, but it goes to some interesting places. And I'm going to be jumping around a bit. We're in John chapter 10. I'm going to start with verse 14, but I'm going to be jumping down around a little bit. I am the good shepherd. We've all heard that one before. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Um, Let's see. Uh, And I lay down my life for the sheep. We've pretty much all heard that. Now this part is really important to me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I want you to think about that for a second. One of the things about people mistreating you, whether they've uh, committed some act of, of aggression against you, maybe they've stolen from you, maybe they've been then rude to you, is you had no choice in that matter, right? They, they put this thing on you, Right. You were the recipient. You were kind of a, a an, an object in, in a thing that they were doing. Jesus here is talking about a really bad thing that's going to happen in his life. I mean, or bad is the wrong word, a really unpleasant thing that's going to happen in his life. But he's making the key point, I'm in charge of my own experience. Mm. I am choosing this. I'm not doing it because someone else is making me doing it. I am doing it because I choose to do it. 
And that's a really important difference. Um, I don't really like mowing my lawn, but I choose to do it because, you know, otherwise, eventually my neighbors who are very nice will not like that very much. (laughs) If you come over with a gun and force me to mow my lawn, that's a very different thing. That's, you know, these are, even though in a sense there's some similarities, the, the paradigm is completely different. So if we take it back to your question of, I am a believer, I want to obey scripture. Jesus commands me to be willing, in a sense, to uh, dispend, uh, dispense infinite forgiveness, but how do I not just let this turn into abuse that's just over and over again? I think Jesus has given us already a couple suggestions of places to start. The first is be very, very careful who you trust. Jesus was careful who he trusted. Be careful who you trust. And that includes being careful who you trust includes being careful who you allow to be in a position where they could do something uncool. That second part, you know, I lay it down on my own accord. No one, no one takes it from me is to be clear because one of the kinds of, of uncool behavior that comes up in Christian culture a lot is people expecting you to give, 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 or serve, 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 or always do, you know, uh, you'd always be that person who's taking care of everyone else. The example of Jesus is to figure out the things that we choose to do, not that other people are trying to choose for us. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent place to start that off. And Lee, I'd love to get you to pick us up there because it feels like uh, one of the things that Judge uh, is pointing us to here is it is there. I think there's a temptation to treat this verse as unique or kind of a different situation to other conversations about forgiveness in the Bible. And we, we've had those conversations a lot on this show about how forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean wanting to pursue a relationship and yeah. the forgiveness and boundaries. And just doing, just because it says you have to forgive someone, you know, a bunch of times, I think there is a tendency to read that as you have to put up with stuff, even though what we're talking, we could be talking about as Jed is pointing us to, I think there is having the, those same healthy roles of forgiveness but just applying it in multiple instances, right? Yeah. The thing with forgiveness, exactly as you're laying out, Matt, is that forgiveness and remaining in a relationship with someone who has treated you badly are not the same thing. Um, Those are not things that have to go together in order for the forgiveness piece to happen. If if someone offends me, um, if if, if someone mistreats me, if somebody hurts me, it is... For me to carry around a deep emotional bitterness or anger toward them, that's something that actually continues to negatively affect me, um, even after the thing that they've done to me. There's a sense in which the Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is actually something that is it's something that is a kindness to me, the injured person, the person who's actually been hurt. Yep. There <clears throat> what he's encouraging me to do is He's like, look, bitterness is corrosive. Hatred is corrosive. These things, they they tighten up your they, they tighten up your ability to feel. You you do a thing where it's like, I've been injured in this way and and I'm angry at this person or whatever. And there's a tendency that people have to where they they think like, well, 
in this place, I will feel like I'll feel nothing. I'll, I'll turn all emotions off when it comes to this person, but then I'll have normal emotions in other relationships in my life. And that's really not the way human emotions work. If you deaden your emotions in one place, you wind up kind of lowering the level, like the capacity level all over the board. Um, you're kind of turning the gains down for everything. Jesus is teaching here, what it allows you to do is to process the things that have happened to you so that you are saying to this person, and you're really saying it between yourself and the Lord, I release this person, like the the hate that I would hold or the bitterness that I would hold for the injury that they have that they have done to me, so that I am not carrying around a corrosive emotion that's going to deaden the way that I feel in all kinds of other places in my life. I'm just not going to carry that around. I'm going to forgive them. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to continue to be in a relationship with them. The, the examples that Jed gave were fantastic of Jesus. I'm going to give you another place because what, what sometimes people will do, and I've had people do this to me, and I've had this done uh, and said by Christians to some of my friends as well, is a lot of times what Christian people will do when they want to get away with their nonsense is... And they don't want to be held accountable to the fact that they have done something wrong and that they have unhealthy relationship. Unhealthy relationship patterns is they'll say, hey, we're Christians. People are watching us. So we have to be in a good relationship because, you know, you need to forgive me. I need to forgive you. And we have to be in a good relationship. That is not biblical. And so what, and, and that's where somebody's trying to pastor you and somebody's trying to uh, shame you and somebody's trying to strong arm you and guilt you. Let me give you one example. And there's multiple, um, there, there's multiple verses like this, but I'll give you one that's really, really clear. It has to do with the, the sin of divisiveness, which is a big, big deal in, in, in the Christian community in the New Testament and, and in the Old Testament. But there's a place where the Apostle Paul is talking in the book of Titus in chapter 3. And he's talking about uh, some people in this uh, Christian community who had caused some division. They were talking about other people behind their back. They were treating people poorly and mistreating other people, just relationship nonsense. And what Paul says is, in this verse, he says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them twice. And then he does not say, forgive them and reconcile with them. He actually says, and then have nothing to do with them. That's the precedent. The precedent is there are people who are on some nonsense and you can't, you, you are not bound to be in a relationship with them. You are not bound to enter into that madness over and over and over again. Now, when you pair that together with what Jesus said about forgiveness and you understand the way human emotions work, Jesus' teaching is, after, is actually a gift to me. It's a gift to me that I can untie and release the negative emotions that I would carry around from being angry and bitter over the, the injuries that I've received from people. And at the same time, I'm not going to enter into a relationship with that person, and I do not have to enter into a relationship with that person and to, and to let that continue to happen to me. I can hold a person at an arm's length. I can create a, a, a good and healthy boundary and say, no, we're not going to do that. Um, Paul's language is even stronger than the language I'm giving you. What he says is, warn him once, warn him twice and then have nothing to do with them. That's a direct quote from the Bible. So don't let Christian people tell you that the only way to really Christian this thing up is everybody has to be in, in a state of perfect relationship reconciliation with everybody else. It's absolutely not biblical. It's absolutely not. That's all great stuff from these guys. I'll throw in one more uh, kind of a thought on the end here. 
Um, looking at this verse in the uh, William Barclay commentary, which we recommend quite often, you can find those online. You can find them for free if you just Google William Barclay. Um, so in, he points out, and a lot of his great commentary stuff is giving some uh, background into the, the ideas of the time. And in the Old Testament, there's a lot of mentions between the book of Amos and in a lot of the filtering a lot of rabbinical teaching that it was incumbent on you to forgive someone that's, you know, Peter asked the question, how often should I forgive my brother? He's kind of talking in this established framework. And the thing was, uh, in rabbinical teaching three times, that was what was required of you. That was, you know, what you had to do being good standing. So that gives us a little extra texture to the story, which I really like of Peter opening up with trying to come uh, an opening bid of being way more religious than he has to be. And kind of, I would forgive someone 70 times. And Jesus kind of, into my mind, giving a number that is not just higher, but is saying you need to totally explode your idea of what forgiveness is and how it works. And part of exploding mm-hmm. that is making forgiveness the hallmark of being a really good religious person. And you know, this idea of uh, Peter opening with, well, I would forgive someone 70 times and Jesus saying, that's not how this works. You'd have to give someone this time, someone this essentially infinite times. Well, I don't want to do that. That sounds terrible. I don't, that I don't want to do that. Welcome to the point. That is how <laughs> forgiveness works. And uh, you don't mention your question, but uh, immediately Jesus goes on and tells the parable of the servant whose master forgives them a debt. And then they go out and refuse to forgive the debt of someone who owes them a lot less. And, uh, you know, long story short, uh, the point is don't be that way because you've been given this great forgiveness by God. So we should be forgiving. But again, none of this is about uh, putting up with abuse. None of this is about accepting certain types of behavior. This is not even really about seeing forgiveness as primarily between you and the person who is forgiving, you are forgiving. This is forgiveness as a mindset, an idea, an ideology that is rooted in your relationship with Jesus. But as both these guys have pointed out, your relationship with Jesus also gives you freedom. Your relationship with Jesus also means that he wants you to have good, healthy relationships, that he doesn't want you to do things that are going to be draining and tearing down for you. So not only do we see forgiveness in this kind of uh, be we don't so we're not supposed to see forgiveness. I don't think from this story in the well be super hardcore about it because that opens us up to exactly the kind of manipulation that Lee's talking about right there. But if forgiveness is between you and Jesus, then you get to be as forgiving as you are led to be between you and Jesus. And all three of us in the show have definitely had moments where we have gone to the Lord in prayer and you know pretty uh, strongly felt the thing come back of. Well, you should definitely forgive them. And again, let's get our definitions clear here. Don't hold that against them anymore. But you don't need to hang out with them. You don't need to work with them. You don't need to give them that role of authority in your life that they've been Uh, seeking. None of that is unforgiveness. Because again, forgiveness is about holding on, holding a debt against someone. uh, And you can let go of the debt uh, to, to go with that analogy. That doesn't mean when they come back and ask for money again, you have to give it to them. That's right. You forgave that debt. You're not, you're not trying to get them locked up for not paying you back. You're not pursuing that. But we do get to handle a new situation on its own as an isolated incident. 
and not uh, be manipulated in his ways these guys are talking about. A lot of great stuff right there. We'll move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, I was wondering about 1 John 3, 8. It sounds quite harsh. We're all sinners, so according to this verse, we're in deep trouble. It also seems to lay the groundwork for some legalistic tendencies. So how do I relate to it? What's the context for this verse? And another very cool question. We love uh, the questions about digging into a biblical thing from a, a different angle or an extra layer. And Lee, where do we kick off with this? This is what John says. This is, the Apostle John says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Okay, I love that in your question, um, you used the word context. The word context is, is extremely key here, because when you do pull that one verse out, it looks like, all right, if you sin, you're on the devil's team, and Jesus came here to dunk on the devil and get rid of the devil's team. So um, when you just isolate that one verse, that, is, uh, that's, that can be a pretty frightening-sounding thing. But let, let us broaden the context. Um, the, the, I guess the scary thought that my, pla- my or the scary place that my brain would go would be, oh, man, this means that if I sin at all, then I am potentially now part of something that, that Jesus wants to destroy. Um, and that's what he, that was his mission. That's what he came to do. When you broaden the context and look at all of first John, and actually first John is not very long. It would not take you very long to read the entire book. Um, probably if you just started from stem to stern, I bet it would take 12, 15 minutes just to read the entire book. But if you read the whole thing, what you would find is you would find a guy who's making a couple of points um, in kind of a circuitous way where he, he'll, he kind of lays out his thesis and then he goes back over it again, takes it down to a deeper layer and then goes back over it again and again. And the, one of the biggest points that he's trying to make is every single person is a sinner. Everybody. There is nobody who hasn't done anything that's wrong. And the great news is we have an advocate. We have someone who has paid for all of the sin, and you can literally just ask for forgiveness for all of it. That He says that in chapter one. And one of the big points that he makes throughout this book is, now, that being the case, let's grow in some things. Um, everybody's messed up. We have an advocate who's paid the debt, and you can be completely forgiven for everything. That's where we start. And now, let's look at some places where we need to grow. Um, one of the things that he is really, really harping on in this book is the humility to be honest about those things and to be honest about who you are, to be honest about yourself, that I would have the courage and the humility to be able to look at myself in an honest way, realizes, realize where I need help and where I need to grow and ask for that help and seek out that growth. And another pl- thing that he's hugely, hugely talking about is we've got to deal with any hate that we have going on. Any, any hate against any groups of people or anything like that, we've got to deal with that and grow in those places. Again, there's nobody who has never sinned. Jesus has paid for all of it, and you can be completely forgiven. And anybody that says they haven't sinned, he, he says in chapter one, is lying to themselves, and the truth is not in them. You can be completely forgiven, and we need to grow in some stuff. Let's grow in loving people instead of hating people, and let's grow in being honest and humble about that. When, when you look at the, 
the book of First John as basically a thesis paper about those things. We're all a mess. Jesus has paid for it. There's some stuff we need to grow in. I'm encouraging you to look at it and be honest about it. Um, then all of this stuff starts to make more sense. When you pull that one verse out, um, it can be pretty scary. But when you look at the broader context of John saying, we're good and we're covered, we're all a mess, but we've all been covered. Now let's look at some places, some growing edges that we all have. They're super important, and we have an advocate, and we have help. Then all of those things start to make a little more sense. I think it's a great point and a wonderful place to start that off. And Jed, where do we take it from there? This is just for me. You don't have to go with me on this, but but this is what I would do, right? So we have here, and there's actually a real similarity between this question and the last one. We have this verse that sounds like it's saying something that's pretty much impossible to live with. In this case, if you do anything bad ever, then you're bad and God hates you. Uh, actually, as with the previous verse, no matter what anybody does, you always have to put up with it forever, no matter what, because that's what being a Christian is. It, we have these two verses that there's there's a way to read them that is a lot. And I want to encourage, this is something I've been doing a lot of. I, If you think it would be useful to you, I want to encourage you to think about it. You don't have to do it, but People talk a lot about the idea of good theology and bad theology. They talk about biblical theology and unbiblical theology, and that's that's fine. Um, I'm not a theologian, so I can't really comment on any of that. But I want to encourage you to consider a different duality, and it, that would be functional theology mm. and dysfunctional theology. Yeah. Does this work in the real world? So let's actually look at our previous question. A reading of Matthew 18.21 that says— if you're a Christian, you have to put up with whatever anyone does, always, no takesies, backsies, you just take it, that's what God wants you to do. That's dysfunctional theology. Yeah. There is no way to live that out. There is absolutely no way to live a life that does that and doesn't just implode into something terrible. So we gave you our best shot at answering what Jesus might have been talking about there, but I would encourage you to be confident he can't possibly mean the really, really bad version because that's not livable. There's no functional way to do that. That same analysis is going to apply here. If you can dig it, there are people in various sects of Christianity who would tell you that they no longer sin, that they've worked at it and they've got it to a point where they no longer sin. I've actually known people who who would tell you that. I've grown up around some weird stuff. And there's a much larger number who would imply that very, very strongly, but oh, never yeah. actually come out and say those words. <laughs> oh, yeah. There, there are a lot of people who believe that about themselves or believe that they're about 99.99% of the way there anyway. And here's what I can tell you in the spirit of functional versus non-functional. That never, ever works. Ever. The, the people who either would tell you or basically tell you, yeah, I don't, I don't sin, are miserable. They are so unhappy. Uh, I'm going to list off some things, and then I'm going to tell you why I'm listing them off. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that in the book of Galatians, Paul says God's Spirit brings about in our lives. The legalistic people that I know have none of those things. Mm. I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think about the most legalistic people you've known and ask, how much love and joy and peace and patience did they have? Dang, man. They don't have any. They're miserable. 
They are holding together by a thread. And the last one on that list is self-control. And I'm loath to in any way refer back to where we started with the, the Southern Baptist apocalypse because it's such a horrific thing. But, but here's what I can say is that the most hyper-legalistic people I've ever known, the percentage of them that were ultimately revealed to have something horrific that was going on in their lives in order to take the edge off of how bad life sucked to keep living that way. It's a high percentage, man. Yep. It's a really, really high percentage. So even the thing they're purporting to pull off, they are not pulling off. What does all this have to do with you? Again, let's forget about good theology and bad theology. Let's look at functional and non-functional. A reading of this text that says God expects you to never sin doesn't work. Right. Simply, simply does not work. If that's the way that you're reading it, that's, that's a non-starter. There is no version of your life that's going to work out that way. God must mean something else at this point in the Bible because you can't live that version. And good news, literally everything else in the New Testament confirms you can't live that. God does have something else for you. When we get to these problematic texts where it's like, whoa, something I'm doing and I encourage you to think about doing is looking at, forget about good or bad functional versus non-functional there's a reading i'm tempted towards could a person even live that way and if not what other readings are there i think that's a wonderful wonderful place to take that that's excellent stuff i want to kind of build on what jed has said there just in the context of first john chapter three because he is absolutely right and lee starts off here context is critical and that's in a micro and a macro so the larger context about these guys are talking about is entirely critical. And that is the context of your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with God through that of being forgiven, of being born again, of being renewed, of not having the consequences of your actions. That is the context in which we need to see all these verses that when isolated can sound, you know, utterly condemning. We need to see them through the context of a book that contains Romans eight, one where there's no condemnation. So, that's a very bit of important context for all of this stuff. Um, one of the, to, to my mind, and I, one of these is maybe I'm not smart enough to understand it. One of the issues of an idea of systematic theology is this idea that theology works like math, where you learn addition and then addition helps you learn multiplication and the multiplication helps you learn exponential functions. And then, you know, it all kind of builds on each other, you know, to go a full old school doctor who, to me, good theology is it's kind of a big ball of wibbly wobbly and it all kind of <laughs> connects and works together. And there's not really that A leads to B leads to C, which can be a problem because it can be a problem in the beginning and then very helpful later on, because this is not a mathematical proof where you have to get A right before you can get to B and get to C. But within that, and I this is I'm not sure I'm gonna explain this for a while, but I hope you go with me. There in the micro, so when we look at the way Jesus tells a story, the way Paul breaks something down, the way something is in the Old Testament, in that order really does matter a lot of the time because that's being written as a chunk. So in that, with that in mind, let's look at 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Mm. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So... It's very important here, and I don't want to. I don't want to sound rudimentary. It's very important that First John three one comes before First John three eight. Mm -hmm. 
First John three one is in no way a conditional statement on First John three eight. So that is how we have to kind of undo that. As you you absolutely rightly point out, you know that this can seem like a real basis for legalism. Well, we do need something to counteract that. And a lot of times in the Bible, as Jed is talking about, you know, good practice here. When you find the big, seemingly gotcha, isolated um, legalism statement, the place you find the antidote to that is a few verses before it. Yeah. Because as Lee's talking about, the, 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 particularly the epistles are being written to communities who are trying to solve problems, who are trying to negotiate things. And there are some recommendations in there. There are some if-thens in there. But... Uh, Paul, John, Peter, the guys write these, they start and intentionally start with these statements of, as, as Lee has uh, pointed out many times on the show and in, in sermons I've said, we start with the identity statement. God has lavished such great love on you to call you his child. Now we need to look at some things that we need to work on, but we started with a thing we started with for a reason. Yeah. And that is always a good, good thing to remember when you hit those kind of statements and another great question, we move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, how do I not lose hope when it seems like everything really keeps getting worse? And you know, sometimes I worry that we have uh, a very occasional on the show. I worry that this may be a question that uh, the hosts are not exactly uh, hip to connect to emotionally. Sure. Premise the idea. Uh, looking around, noticing everything seems to be getting even crappier. Um, I can tell you, folks, we're right there with you. Um, <laughs> but we, we, do endeavor, we do endeavor not to lose hope. And Lee, where do we start off? <laughs> I tell you, for me, the the number one thing, and, and I, I'm exactly where Matt is. I, there are so many things. I had a friend today who texted me and said, well, um, after 12 years, I'm just deleting Twitter. It's just the, the it's just become too mean. I, I don't, he's like, there's not, tell me if I miss a cool sports thing because I j- the world is too terrible. The Christians are killing me. I just can't. And this is a man who loves content. Oh, he loves oh it. Oh my gosh. Yet he has to leave Twitter. He has that's to the leave. tragedy. That's right. This man has to leave Twitter. Um, we, we get it. Um, th- this is, it is absolutely frustrating how many things keep getting worse and worse and worse and, and sad and evil and wrong. Um, I will tell you in the midst of all of the noise of the awfulness, I will just speak personally and say the thing that has brought my life, hope, laughter, fun, kindness is finding my, and this is a kind of a cliche word, but finding my tribe finding people who are on what I'm on, finding people who who uh, care about love, who care about other people, who care about helping, um, finding outside of that, finding, um, this is probably a cliche phrase as well, or it's just a John Lewis phrase. I can't remember which, but finding a good fight and getting in it. Yep. Um, finding yep. something to care about that matters where someone needs help. And I may have some skill or some resource or some energy or some innovation to be able to actually provide some help. Those two things more than anything else, help me to cope with the noise of a world that is losing its complete mind. Um, finding people who, who care about what I care about, 
Um, and that's not to say I'm, I'm just keep an insular community of homogenous, whatever. This is, um, just finding people who love, love, who care about helping and who, um, who care about, you know, amplifying voices and who care about just doing the right thing. I mean, and, and then finding good fights and getting in it. Um, I, and the place that I would say to start, and you know, you don't have to get in the biggest fight you can find is look around in your, it might just be in your home or in your dorm or in, um, you know, on a team that you're on or in your office, um, look around for something that you could do in the next few days, something small that you could do that would make one person's world a little bit better place to live. Something yeah. that you could do. Maybe that, maybe that means writing a letter. Maybe that means, um, you know, cooking some brownies. Maybe that means asking someone to go on a walk with you and just asking a lot of questions and listening. It could be something as simple as a Starbucks card. Um, it, you just don't know, man. Um, like finding something to do for someone that makes their life a little bit better place to live in, makes the world a little bit better for them. Man, that kind of, that kind of thing, one, you're literally making the world a better place. Um, and two, it gives you a sense of hope that in the middle of the just ridiculousness of the world, there actually is some coolness. There actually is some gentleness. There actually is some light and some and some and some kindness and some hope. And when you get to be part of generating some of that, that is a really, really like cool level of trippy awesome awesomeness in the middle of a ridiculous and sad and mean world. Beautifully put. And Jed, what would we have to add to that? I super second everything that Lee said. I want to start with something that sounds, I think, in a sense like bad news, but I think that that there will be freedom on the other side, and that is hope is not rational. Hope is not something where we survey our circumstances and we weigh them and we ask, do I have more good circumstances than bad circumstances? Are things you know more or less likely to work out in the future? And if I can answer yes on this checklist, then now I have hope. That's not how hope works, man. Hope is is not rational. It's not tied to circumstance. In fact, I think you would probably find more hope in places where circumstances are worse than in places where circumstances are good, uh, because hope hope isn't rational. It's not based on circumstance. It's not based on observation. It is, in the true sense of the word, it is mystical. Mm-hmm. Hope is mystical, and as such, it stands on its own merits. Um, it doesn't it doesn't depend on reality or analysis. And this is the last part, and this is the really bad news part because. I don't want anyone preaching this at me. Hope is a choice. Mm. There's something I think about. There's a relief in giving into hopelessness, even as it feels terrible, because hopelessness lets me off the hook. If if things are hopeless, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to work on myself. I don't have to work on the world. I don't. I don't have to do anything. You know, one of the, the most famous passages in Scripture comes out of the book of Micah, and it says, What does the Lord your God require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And if I can just decide that everything is hopeless, well, then I don't really have to do any of that. <laughs> what, what would be the point? Yes, sure, I would love with the mercy and the whatnot, but it's all, it's all doomed. So it's just, uh, you know, who, who cares? Hope's a choice, man, and it's a choice that we have to make 
for ourselves. No one else can make it for us. And God will not force us to choose hope. He's prepared to meet us in that moment. He's prepared to, to give us the strength to make that choice, and he's prepared to give us the, the courage to live it out in the really cool ways that Lee was describing. But he's not going to make us on any given day choose hope. And at least for me, hope or not is a daily choice. It is sometimes an hourly choice. It is certainly not a, a one-time thing. And I would add that I don't think that I have ever regretted hope. Mm. I don't think that I've ever chosen hope and wished that I hadn't. I've recognized that oftentimes choosing hope has made my life more complicated. It's made my life less, in a sense, less easy because despair is super easy. Like you don't do anything. I've plumbed the depths pretty good and like, just not getting out of bed for three days. Like, I mean, it, like logistically it is, it is easier. Like this, this, this is undeniable. So, um, hope is complicated. Hope is messy. Hope is inconvenient, but I've never regretted choosing it. But I, I would add one more thing, which is, I, I think in my experience, I think that your expression of an irrational, um, wild and semi-dangerous hope it, it truly needs to be your own, right? Like, I, I'm going to give an example. There, there's a, a German writer named Jürgen Moltmann who's very elderly. He is almost 100 years old. Um, but he, he said this amazing thing uh, that, for me, is, is an expression of, of hope when I really need hope. Let me pull it up here. Give me one second. While Jed pulls that up, I will point out that uh, the point about choosing hope, I can tell you that that's a great point. Because it uh, instilled in me the the impulse that all great truth does, which is the desire to amen and boo him at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So here's a here's a quote from Jürgen Moltmann. He writes, I know there is someone waiting for me who will not give me up, who goes ahead of me, who lifts me up, someone to whom I am important. Mm. And for me... That is a summary of the kind of hope that I am able to choose. I'm not able to choose a hope that says everything in this world is within my lifetime going to work itself out and get better. And, you know, it, we're all we're just a couple weeks away from paradise here on Earth. That would be a really hard form of hope for me to choose. I'm not sure that I could do that. But the idea of saying, no, come what may, there is someone who is there for me, who lifts me up to whom I am important. That is a hope that I can choose. And if you can dig it, to tie it back to the Bible, we're, we're about to read one of the more famous passages in Scripture. That's the kind of hope the Bible is actually talking about. So this is from the book of Romans. This is in, in chapter 5. Um, we'll look at it together in the NIV. It says, not only so, But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his spirit. There is a hope you can choose that will not let you down. There is a hope you can choose that will not put you to shame. So choose hope, but choose it carefully. I believe that there is someone to whom you're important. I believe that is a reason to have hope. I believe you should choose that hope for yourself, but you must choose it, and I think you'll be glad you did. That is all excellently put. Um, Jed has thrown down the uh, 
the quote from an author with a Germanic name, Gauntlet. So, of <laughs> course, it must be answered with the Frederick Buechner quote. Yes, sir. And I, t- to me, this really ties together exactly the two awesome points that you guys are making. This is from a novel that if you haven't read and you like uh, words put together in the right order, you really should check out called Godric. <laughs> um, and this is kind of the, 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 the end of it. It's from the, one of the final chapters. It's a book about a very old man who's a saint in medieval England. But he kind of sums it all up as this. Uh, but this much I will tell. What's lost is nothing to what's found. And all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. So I love that quote, and I want to use it to tie together, again, exactly what Ali and Jed are saying there, um, because one of the things where the irrationality of hope can seem to uh, not really hold up is because hope in the world that we're faced with can sometimes feel like trying to put out a, a house fire with a squirt gun, um, and really feel like hope is not up to to the task of all the of all that there is to despair about, but when we rear our hope in that something bigger than us that they're talking about and doing it in those small ways, at least talking about, um, we learned that not only is hope not uh, rational and mathematical, uh, the world really isn't either. Mm. It's not, you know, X number of good things happen and X, X plus one number of bad things happen. So life is terrible and it's not the other way around either. Um, those small things, those, gestures of hope those uh uh statements of goodwill those hey folks matt here in the editing process uh so my wife and i are fostering some kittens from our local animal shelter and uh they did pretty well through about the first hour of this recording until one uh, jumped over my shoulder directly onto the keyboard hitting the space bar, which in Pro Tools stops recording. Uh, So uh, the last little bit of that answer is going to be lost to time, but I assure you it was quite wise. But just coming in here after the fact, let you know that if you have a question for us, you can reach us at saythatpodcast at gmail.com or thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. And to let you know that we're going to take out the song this week, this is by Jed. It's called 7 by 70 See you next week. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. It's seven times 70. I've packed up and left town. Cause by seven times 70, you couldn't still want me around. But how many thousands of
by now